We are uh, doing another life verse tonight, a, a time of looking at one of the passages that uh, impacted a life. Sometimes it's hard to guess, and sometimes we might say, well, what was the life verse of so-and-so or so-and-so? What verse was most memorable to them? And we wouldn't be able to find it. Uh, our, our, our subject tonight is a man named John Knox. Okay, how many have heard of John Knox? Okay, good. How many of you came from a Presbyterian background? Well, the Presbyterians would look at him really as the father of Presbyterianism. And so I thought, okay, maybe some of you guys had Presbyterian background, so that's why you... John, you don't hear too much about John Knox these days. Um, but he's a, he's a key figure. Um, and, and there's one that really appreciates him. That's good with me. Don't, don't worry. Um, let's look at what John Knox looks like. Uh, he's from Scotland, and, and there he is uh, preaching away. He was a he was a he was a firebrand, and he was a, a force to be contended with. I'm going to walk through the events of his life, and at the end of his life is when we find out what his key verse was. So let me lay the foundation of, of, of why we care about this fellow. Okay. Um, he was born around. We, we guessed 1514. I've seen like 1505, 15. Like, so a lot of these times, we're not sure what day or month. We're not sure what year. So let's say 1514. So perspective, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses. What year? 1517. 1517. So uh, he was three years, we think. Let's, let's just assume 1514. He was three years old when that happened. Okay, so that cut, but so he's right in the thick of when the Reformation is beginning. Now, again, that's not the only influence. You know, in England, there was Wycliffe in the 1400s, there was Tyndale, um, and so these are some of the influences. But born in, in Haddington in about 1514. 1536, he graduates from the University of St. Andrews and is ordained a priest. So he's in the Catholic Church, ordained as a priest. In 1540, he becomes a notary. Now, we think of that someone who can verify your signature. There was kind of a minor legal official. So he had kind of a, a, a law type of responsibility. And he also worked as a tutor. So he became the uh, instructor of uh, two young men who were two, two young men, two children that were uh, from a wealthy family. In uh, 15, so that's 1540. So there he's what, um, 26 years old. 1543, uh, I see guesstimated as to when he trusted Christ as Savior. But even there, how did that happen? When did he make that move? So. Let's say 1543. Luther, 95 theses, that we call that the trumpet call of the Reformation, 1517. So 26 years later, uh, the gospel is spreading. It's spreading in, in England. Um, it's spreading in Germany and Switzerland and France. Um, when we think of Germany, of course, we think of Mark Luther. When we think of um, when we think of uh, Switzerland, we think of Calvin. 
when we think of England, we might think of people like um, uh, Latimer and others who, who stood up for the gospel. But the gospel is spreading and he comes to faith. In 1545, he, he becomes associated with a man named George Wishart, who was a, you know, kind of a hero in Scotland. He was a fierce uh, gospel preacher, and he would go from town to town and preach the gospel. And so um, here is priest John Knox is, is, is drawn to Wishart and his preaching, as so many were. Well, he became increasingly threatened, Wishart did. And so priest John Knox uh, brought a, a big sword, or broadsword, a two-handed sword. Sometimes they call him the, the claymore. Uh, he, 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 he would bring, he'd hold that as Wishart preached. In other words, so he was one of the bodyguards for this preacher. Eventually, um, Wishart received a letter that he was going to be hunted down and captured and killed, arrested and killed. Uh, Knox and others with him said, we'll stand with you, we'll, we'll fight. And he said, uh, no, this is for me. You need to continue on. And so he sent them away and they left. And he was arrested. Spent some time, I think, in prison and then was burned at the stake. So that was in um, 1546 is about when that happened. 1547, so uh, things were going on. The Catholic versus Protestant issue was becoming a, a battleground in Scotland and other areas. And so what happened is the Protestants went to the castle in St. Andrews and um, took, took cover, you know, thinking they could be protected from the Catholic assault. And that was coming through the, the, the Roman Catholic Queen Regent who brought in the French troops. And so, so here was a Scottish leader calling for the French Navy and Army to help her stamp out the Protestants. In, in, in European history, in this time frame, so much it is Protestant, Catholic, you know, what religion? I remember when I was at Berkeley, I met a guy who was a PhD in history. I was bacteriology. I, I, I barely, you know, I, I heard of Christopher Columbus. Uh, you know, history was not my thing at that time. So here's a guy doing a PhD, and I said, well, you know, uh, uh, we got talking about religion, and he said, oh, religion is a big issue in history. He said, on my doctoral exams, I have to be able to name the kings, uh, for example, of England. I have to name their generals, and I have to say which one is Protestant, which one is Catholic. That isn't just arbitrary, because they went to war over these things. And so here was the, the, the Catholic powers that be bringing in the French military. And uh, this St. Andrew's castle was built to be indestructible. Kind of like the Titanic was unsinkable. And so the French came in with heavy artillery and they just pulverized it. So the Protestants were in there. In fact, while they were in there, eventually John Knox fled and joined them. Here he was teaching and teaching sound, not just general things, but he was also teaching the gospel and teaching the scriptures to these two young men. And so the, the, the men and the, the folks in the church said, we want you to teach us too. And he said, no, no, I'm just, I'm just a tutor. I'm not a preacher. And so uh, I want to read to you how uh, 
one author, Douglas Bond, in the book, The Mighty Weakness of John Knox. Uh, and he's, he's really good on, on, on church history. Maybe I'll talk more about him later. But during this time, Knox was increasingly called to expand his private instruction of his students into public preaching to the entire castle garrison, which he declined out of hand, refusing to run where God had not called him. No, no, I'm not called to preach. I'm just, I'm just here to tutor these young men. Finally, uh, one of them came to Knox and said this, In the name of God and of his son Jesus Christ, and in the name of these that presently call you by my mouth, I charge you that you, that you refuse not this holy vocation, but that you have regard to the glory of God, the increase of his kingdom, and the edification of your brethren, that you take upon you the public office in charge of preaching, even as you look to avoid God's heavy displeasure and desire that he should multiply his graces with you. Basically says, I'm telling you, God wants you to be a preacher, and if you don't, you're in trouble with God. That's his, you want to avoid God's heavy displeasure. I may use that in a sermon one of these days. Uh, you know, to avoid God's heavy displeasure. And so he just put the fear in it. And he said, okay, um, I'll, I'll preach. As I say that, does that remind you? Yeah, there you go, Jonah. Uh, that would be a good example. Yeah, he got strong, and, that, and God's displeasure was made clear to him. I'm thinking of John Calvin. Remember John Calvin, he, he fled persecution of the evangelicals in France. The gospel was there, the Reformation, then was being persecuted again by the Catholic powers. He fled, and he just wanted to be a scholar. He was just a book kind of guy, and he was brilliant. And a guy named William Farrell said, I need you to help me in Geneva. Said, I don't want to get in the middle of all that stuff. I just want to go and study and write. And so William Farrell spoke to him. And let me see if I can find his words. As Calvin later recounted, Farrell burned with an... This is on reading how Steve Lawson describes this. As Calvin later recounted it, Farrell burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel immediately strained every nerve to detain me. After having learned that my heart, this is John Calvin speaking, was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation, a curse, that God would curse my retirement and the tranquility of the studies which I sought if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance when the necessity was so urgent. So this guy came, stood up like a Jeremiah and said, God's going to curse you if you think you can go off and have a quiet time of study. He put the fear in John Calvin. John Calvin, okay, okay. <laughs> and history changed. Well, this is the same thing that's kind of happening with um, um, John Knox up in Scotland. If you want God's blessing and if you don't want God's curse, then you are called to preach. Okay, okay, I'll preach. And so, so he did. He started preaching. But eventually the castle did fall, as I already mentioned. He was there and then was considered something of a leader. And so he was, he was captured and imprisoned. He was taken to France as a slave in bonds. And he was put on a galley. A galley was a, a, a ship. <coughs> and on those ships they had long oars. 
And you, he was chained to in a galley. He was chained to the oar for 19 months. Uh, it, it, it wrecked his health for the rest of his life. It, it was, there was, not only was there starvation and abuse and horrible conditions, they would, um, at one point, they came to him with a, 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 I guess, a plank or something with a picture of Mary on it and said, You will honor this. Uh, you know, so that she might save you. He grabbed it and tossed it overseas, overboard into the water and said, well, let her save herself. <laughs> he was kind of a feisty guy. Um, but so he, so he was uh, badgered as a heretic. He was belittled as a slave. He was brutalized on the galley for 19 months. Finally, uh, under the, I think, uh, uh, pleadings or appeals of Edward VI in England, again, a, a gospel Protestant, he was free, and he went to England, and he did some preaching there uh, in various places. Um, <clears throat> that's when he eventually met uh, his, his uh, future wife, moved to London, uh, became involved in some disputes there, they, they wanted him to be a bishop, and he said, I'm not called to be a bishop. You know, and so he preached, but he went around to various places and was being already useful. <clears throat> In 1553, and I, I know I'm, I'm just kind of giving you a sense of some things of history that are, you want to remember all this. King, sometime you might want to do some reading on looking up King Edward VI, young man, godly. He, he, he came to the throne very young, and but he had godly advisors. And so he was a powerful influence for the gospel in England and, and supporting it elsewhere. And so he was greatly influential, but he died young and was replaced by um, Mary I, Queen Mary I, who was Catholic. She was... Uh, Edward's half-sister, and she uh, she was deeply upset because Henry VIII, remember him? Um, he had divorced her mother. And, and remember, how could he do that if he's Catholic? The Pope wouldn't have... So he said, well, then I'll just establish the Church of England. That's how it became. So I can, as head of the Church of England, I can authorize that I can get a divorce. Her mother was one of the ones divorced, so when she came to the throne... What do you think she's thinking about the Protestants and his Protestant church? She is the one that we call Bloody Mary. Under, under her reign of terror, some 300 gospel-preaching ministers were, were burned at the stake. That's another story we could get into. But that under her persecution, he fled. Uh, and he um, he said this, uh, speaking of her rise to power. After the death of this most virtuous prince, King Edward VI, of whom the godless people of England for the most part were not worthy. Doesn't that remind you of Hebrews 11? Speaking of the, the, the ones of faith of whom the world was not worthy. Satan intended nothing less than that the light of Jesus Christ utterly to have been extinguished within the whole Isle of Britain, 
For after him, Edward VI, was raised up in God's hot displeasure, that idolatrous Jezebel, mischievous Mary of Spaniard's blood, cruel persecutrix of God's people. So this guy knew how to make friends with uh, people in authority. He was, you know, so that's, if, if, if John Knox, if one thing we can say, and we'll say we might be able to rightfully criticize, perhaps he was a little unrestrained of speech, but he was a powerhouse. But you see his response to Mary coming. He had to flee. Uh, he fled to France, then Zurich, and Calvin, finally to Calvin's Geneva. Uh, he pastored a church in Frankfurt, Germany, and eventually a, a church uh, of, of English exiles in Frankfurt, and then English exiles in Geneva. Uh, so he, he preached to an he pastored an English congregation in Geneva. He secretly returned to Scotland, where he married uh, Marjorie Bowes, whom he had met and, and um, was there for a while preaching. Let me read a, another comment about him. Throughout his ministry, Knox considered Calvin his spiritual father. He sought the counsel of the Genevan reformer in correspondences. So influential was Calvin in Knox's life and faith that when he lay dying, he asked his wife to read Calvin's sermons on Ephesians to him. I have attended many in those last hours and days. I have yet to have anyone ask me to read Calvin's sermons on anything to them. But it was he's so he maybe he maybe he sat into those the preaching of those sermons, the riches of truth that are in Ephesians. But you just see his love, respect, and appreciation for Knox for for Calvin, even though they didn't always agree. In fact, um, some of the some of his really bold, outlandish things he said. Uh, he wrote one treatise that Calvin banned in, in Geneva. So so I mean that puts something of that in order. Knox's time in Geneva was so life-shaping, he wrote, it is the most perfect school of Christ on earth since the days of the apostles. So under, you know, when, when Calvin was there, the, you know, he really helped the city be in order and the church in order. And, and, and Knox saw that and said, this is how things should be. But he still loved Scotland, longed to be there. And so he said, I feel a sob and a groan, willing that Christ Jesus might open openly be preached in my native country, although it should be with the loss of my wretched life. So I loved life in Geneva. But he said, Scotland needs me, and I'd rather go to Scotland and die than enjoy what I consider paradise in Geneva. Um, in 1556, he was condemned for heresy in Scotland returned to Geneva with his wife and mother-in-law. So he'd been preaching for a while in Scotland, had to flee again. In 1558, he wrote a book or a treatise. The first blast of the trumpet against the Montrist Regiment of Women. And basically he was saying, advocating rebellion against ungodly rulers because uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, was ruling. And so he, he was going after her. She was Catholic. Mary, Queen of Scots, was Catholic. By now, um, Bloody Mary died in 1558, and Elizabeth I was Protestant. But when he writes this about the horror of women ruling a country, 
Elizabeth I is not pleased. I'd say, what about me? And she was theoretically on his side as a Protestant. So with the with the dying of, of uh, uh, during that time, the uh, Scottish leaders had established um, reformed Protestantism as the religion of, of Scotland. So a parliamentary procedure. It was it was the the, the, the Church of Scotland. So when Mary Queen of Scots came back as a Catholic, she was a Catholic ruling a Protestant nation. And that was that led to constant tension. As a matter of fact, there were at least five different meetings where John Knox went and uh, knocked heads with the Queen Mary. Um, he returned to Scotland in 1559, preached sermons, conducted con condemning idolatry. Um, he said, perhaps never before in one country, uh, or here's what one person said, uh, perhaps never before in one country were so many converts in Christ in so short a time of the rapid spread of the gospel in Scotland under Knox's leadership, Calvin wrote, as we are astonished at such incredible progress in so brief a time, we likewise give thanks to God whose singular blessing is signally displayed there. So in 1559, the preaching knocks and others. The gospel is sweeping and overwhelming Scotland in a powerful way. Uh, 1560, I guess, is when um, the, the parliament established, uh, accepts the Scots Confession as the official religion of Scotland. And he, um, well, then 1561, I got a little mixed up here, is when Mary Queen of Scots comes back to England or to Scotland, and um, some of the conflicts with John Knox developed. I heard at one point her saying the thing, the, the thing she feared most on earth were the prayers of John Knox. They, they were, he was um, kind of, you know, verbally speaking, if you will, punch you a nose and then talk to you. She was much more, you know, winsome. And, and how can I get you... Uh, uh, to cooperate, and it didn't work with him. In fifth, his wife, first wife, died in 1564. He married Margaret Stuart. He later wrote a history of the Reformation and religion in Scotland. In 1572, he died. So, what do we? What? Do, so, a couple of things I want to just say. When we think of Scotland, I think Presbyterian religion. You know, that's, that's, that's what Scotland's known for. You know, you think of people like Sinclair Fergus and others. Uh, that's who they are. Church of Scotland, Presbyterian. And it's, modernism has had its influence there. But, but that's Scotland. Uh, when we think of the American Revolution, have you ever heard of the Black Regiment? That's what some called the influence of preachers um, and their influence in raising up a spirit of independence and a willingness to stand against royal authority in England. You care to guess what denomination those that black regiment was typically involved in? Presbyterian. Um, Church of England tended to be loyal to the, the king. And so the Presbyterian were very strongly uh, influential in the American Revolution 
an interesting, kind of the same spirit of a John Knox, stand up against um, unjust royalty. This is in the 15, late 1500s, by 1640s, is what's called the Scottish Covenanters. And that's when this, in Scotland, uh, again, they, the, the king was trying to impose his will on the church, and they said, uh, we believe there's, there's two kings. The king is the ruler of our nation, but King Jesus is the ruler of the church. And so they, they the Scottish Covenanters went to war rather than yield on that in Scotland. So that that's a hundred years before the American Revolution. So I think there's an influence there that 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 is significant. I'll, I'll make a passing reformation. I quoted the name Douglas Bond uh, when our, we were our kids were growing up uh, in youth. <clears throat> These aren't baby books, but youth, uh, young young readers. Uh, we read some stories by books by Douglas Bond that are uh, historical fiction all about the Scottish Covenanters. And it was really interesting to see. You know, it was all about Christians trying to honor and, and please the Lord uh, under opposition. A lot about courage and faith. So, um, that's some things I wanted to just say in passing. A great influence that has a lasting influence uh, for generations. Today, this day, some of the greatest preachers come from Scotland. Weeks appreciates name, names like uh, Begg and Ferguson, but throughout history, many. So John Knox uh, was mightily used of God for multi-generational influence. Perfect? Nah. Uh, maybe too fierce? You could put him and Martin Luther in that basket together. But sometimes when someone has to really uh, fight hard balance isn't always the word that comes to mind so I just say that to say there were uh, like his think about this monstrous thing of women regiment or whatever the title was it's probably a little um, over the top uh, like I said even Calvin said no 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 we're not publishing that <laughs> not, not Geneva and he would say you know you try to uh, try to encourage him balance your man. Now let me read some quote from a biography now, another one on, on John Knox uh, about his dying uh, his dying moments. His wife, Margaret, in those final days was ever nearby when not caring for their three daughters and two sons. Richard Bannatyne, Knox's faithful secretary and friend, was never far from the bedside. Around five o'clock in the evening, he called for his wife. Earlier, he had asked for the reading of Isaiah 53 with the sweetest gospel words. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just, by the way, reading that, and he also asked for 1 Corinthians 15 and um, spoke of what a sweet depiction that is. 1 Corinthians 15, that's the resurrection chapter. So he wanted to meditate on Christ as the suffering servant and on the promises of the resurrection. And that makes me wonder, um, 
if you felt like you were in the final hours and would have come to mind to say, I would like a, a, a favorite scripture. What scripture would you, would that be for you? Well, then he said, finally, he asked his wife to read his beloved first anchor. <clears throat> he said, uh, which is John 17. 30 years earlier, when Knox was coming to the Reformed faith out of Roman Catholicism, this was the chapter that brought him peace. He said, this is where I, I cast my first anchor. In other words, that anchor is that's, that's what holds you and secures you. He said, this is the chapter that God used to ground me in my security and certainty in Christ. Here he saw the roots of election and Christ's commitment to the, keep those whom the Father had given him. Well, let me just mention one other thing about him before I read. I want to read John 17. Verses 2 and 3 in particular, I think, are key. But uh, I'm going to read from the Geneva Bible. To the Geneva Bible, you want to get, guess what city was translated in? Geneva. Geneva. Hey, good. Um, Geneva Bible was translated there in Calvin's Geneva. But it was the translating of the Bible into English. This is one thing the Reformation did. God's people need to have the Bible accessible. So while the, while the Protestant reformers were exiled to Geneva, they did the Geneva Bible. Knox was one of those translators. And when he died in, what did I say, uh, 1572, was the King James Bible available? That's 1611. So um, wouldn't you think his wife would bring him the Bible he translated? And so I'm going to read this. And by the way, I, have to, I may struggle because the spelling of things is different from ours. Like the word up, I'm looking at is VP. But um, here's here's the Geneva Bible. This is he said where his where his anchor first, you know, ground bit of ground and it held him strong in Christ. This is the scripture he most wanted to hear as he was prepared to enter into glory. These things spake Jesus and lift up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, that hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to all them that hast given, thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they know thee to be the only very God, and whom thou hast sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the works which thou gavest me to do. And now glorify me, thou Father, with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have declared thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me. They have kept thy word. Now they know that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. And have known surely that I came out from thee, and have believed, yet thou hast sent me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now <clears throat> I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name even them whom thou hast given me, 
that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept, and none of them is lost, but the child of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee, and these things speak I in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou keep them from evil. They are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, sanctify I myself, that they also may be sanctified through the truth. I pray not for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe in me through their word. That's us. That they all may be one as thou, O Father, art in me, and I in thee, even that they may be also one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory that thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, thou in me, that thou may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they which thou hast given me, be with me even where I am, that they may behold that my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world hath also not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. I have declared unto them, thee, the, th them thy name, and will declare it, that they love that wherewith thou hast loved the love with therewith wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. We could look at a lot of things there. As I said in the when he, verses two and three, this is eternal life to know you. But then two verse twenty-four strikes me. I will that thou hast given me, be with me even where I am. As he read those words, John Knox must have thought. God's going to answer that prayer in my life in moments, that I'll be in the presence of the Lord. You read in some of these older generations that they would sometimes say to people, um, they would ask them questions to see if they're still stranding firm in the faith. And so they said to John Knox, can you indicate in some way to us as you're dying that you're of your certainty of the Lord? And so as he was breathing his last he reached it. He, he lifted up his hand and pointed to heaven. And then he was there. Like I said, John Knox is, is no perfect man. But he was, he was fierce. And he was fiercely loyal to Jesus Christ. He loved the Lord. He loved Scotland. And he had a burden for his people that they might know the Lord. And he said he, it was so important for them to know Christ that God Christ be preached in Scotland that he would go knowing it would very well expecting it would cost him his life. He had seen firsthand the execution of faithful believers. And so when he went to Scotland, he expected the same for himself. He didn't die that way. He died of illness 
greatly weakened by his 19 months in the gallery, in the galley, of, uh, in the hold of that ship. But God used him in a mighty way. And so his courage, his faithfulness, uh, I think should be challenging to us. But I also like the fact that as he came near the end, what he most wanted was to hear God's word. Let me encourage you in your own life that that might be something to seek. And also, it may be that as you are with one who is about to enter you know, on the edge of eternity, that that's a wonderful time to read scripture and see the influence that that could have in a heart and life. For John Knox, the apostle, if you will, of Scotland, his passage, John 17. Father, we thank you for this hero. Uh, An imperfect hero, but mightily used in your great hand. Lord, may we be found faithful and useful in your hand as well. I pray in Jesus' name.